Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast with me and my co-host, Chloe Bunter. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry. However, many of the practices we take for granted are out of date or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room in Pilates, and we're here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a fair few F-bombs thrown in. This show is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher. If you've been enjoying the show and you want to give back, give us a five-star rating and write us a glowing review on Apple Podcast app. That'll help other instructors find the show and let us know we're making a difference. Today, Chloe and I discuss neutral spine. What is it? Can we measure it? And should we measure it? We're going to dive deep into the Pilates history archives, as well as take a tour through some of the highlights of the science on the topic. So all that coming up. Hey, Raf. Hey, how are you? <laughs> I'm really good today. I'm, I'm genuinely very good. Yeah. I'm glad to hear it. You've got a good country and western look going on. Yes, well, dear listeners, I did have another top chosen and then I was I was strobing like some hectic, you know, one of those kaleidoscopes as a kid that you look into and it does all the woo funny stuff to your eyes. That's what my shirt was going to do to anyone it was strobing, who was strobing like it was 1995 and you were at a rave party. Yeah. It was, oh, whoa, the flashbacks are making me feel a little nauseous. But that's exactly what was going on, Raph. So um, I have had to change very quickly. (laughs) So now I am a bit more country and western. I kind of go between like, (laughs) the other top was very sort of 60s, 70s. And now I'm very country and western. This is very Tammy Wynette. Yeah. So I'm down with it. But I'm great. I'm really good. I had a very sick kitten last week who is now... 100% 100% better. Um, so that is just, it's amazing to see a little creature go from so crook and at the vets for a day in an oxygen chamber to like running around like they don't have a care in the world. So the body's amazing. It's incredible. Really, really incredible. So shout out Melbourne Cat Vets for being the absolute caring legends. Um, so yeah, that's fine. I'm in a good mood. How about you, Raf? Yeah, I am also in a good mood. Thanks good. for asking. <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to vary it up, you know. <laughs> he didn't he didn't say awesome. Are we all a little worried? <laughs> um, yeah, I've I've just been in in a flow state this morning. Like it's what is it now? A bit after two in the afternoon here in um, podcast land, and uh, yeah, since early this morning, I've been just kind of in a work zone kind of just writing i've been editing this book i've written and um that's been awesome because i got some great feedback from people sent sent it out to a bunch of people to read and give me feedback and like a lot of people gave me really good quality feedback which was awesome so i've made a bunch of changes to it great like yeah. a whole heap of editors yeah yeah, yeah. so I, I i got people uh, to uh, to give me feedback on the content and the flow and did it make sense and was there anything missing and all that kind of stuff. Um, not like, did I miss a full stop or, right, gotcha. you know, <laughs> gotcha. any of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so Exciting. what are we going to talk about today, Chloe? Okay. <laughs> something that I, I um, well, something that I find myself talking about quite regularly. So I'd really love to, yeah, I, basically the bottom line is it's neutral spine. What is it? Should we care about it? Should we be trying to find it in a Pilates class, whether that be via palpation or visual assessment? Uh, is it is it necessary? Uh, that's that's really what I'd like to talk about today. And TLDR, which I love saying now that you told me what it meant. <laughs> Too long to read. Um, just in case there's anyone like me that was like, what the hell does that mean? Um, it doesn't matter. But what I'd like to do today is is really uh, come up with a, a great set of ways that we can help empower our instructors to be able to understand why we don't have to worry about it in a Pilates class um, and deeply understand that because I think with with you've got to understand that in order to let go of maybe the fear around it not being an important thing or it not being something that you need to cue with your clients. 
And I do think it's still quite a pervasive concept in the Pilates realm. Um, And I see it's interesting. I see otherwise seemingly quite fearless instructors still going in for the the palpation of the ASIS and pubic symphysis uh, during or pubic yeah, is it pubic symphysis or pubic? I don't know what they're trying to palpate, but you know, trying to palpate that triangle. Type. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, on themselves though, obviously not on the on themselves, not on someone else. <laughs> for God, no, but on themselves. But I still see instructors doing that, um, particularly in footwork. So I really want to see if we can we can pull that, unpack that a bit, uh, debunk it, but also give you the tools to feel confident that you don't need to do that, you don't need to teach that. Mm. How's that sound, Ralph? Sounds like an awesome episode coming up, Chloe. I thought so. I thought so. (laughs) That's why I chose it. Um, So, yeah, I mean, where do we start? I think we just need to start with, yeah, what do you think? Well, I think there are a few things like, all right, well, what, what is neutral spine? Mm-hmm. You know, where, where does this notion of neutral spine being important come from in Pilates? And uh, what's the science on, like, is it actually important? And can we actually palpate and, you know, tell if we're in neutral, etc.? Yeah. Awesome. And I'd love to sort of talk about why it seems pro- so prevalent to palpate in in footwork when you're laying on your back. So we might have a little bit of a chat about shear forces, et cetera, as well, I think is sure. be an important one. Okay, cool. Well, I'm going to leave the anatomy and biomechanics to you, Raphael Bender, because I do believe that is your jam. So could you start with a little, like, what is neutral? What is it? Well, um, we have, you know, f- for a long time when I was first teaching Pilates, like several years, I thought of neutral as a position, you know, a position of the spine where the anterior superior iliac spine is level with the symphysis pubis uh, and that the lumbar has its natural lordotic curve, which is an anterior convex curve. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that and natural lordotic curve. Natural lordotic curve. I've said that one before. Um, and so, you know, so that's what I was taught when I was a kid growing up in Pilates world. And I think that's what a lot of us were taught. And so what that, you taught you know, me, Raphael Bender. Yeah, I taught you it. Um, I taught a lot of people it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it wasn't until, I can't remember exactly when, but probably, you know, probably like five, six years ago, that I learned that neutral is not actually a position. It's a zone. It's a range. Ah. Yeah. Ah. So, um, uh, ah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to learn something here. This is cool. <laughs> Well, um, so in, and this is kind of diving down, uh, you know, a little bit into the esoteric biomechanics world, but basically um, neutral, inter, you know, spinal biomechanists, people who study biomechanics of the spine, define neutral as the position where all of the ligaments, it's around the mid-range of the spine, you know, not flexed, not extended, not side bent, etc where all of the ligaments are loose, right? So if you think about the spine, the you know, the vertebral column, you've got a whole stack of lumbar vertebrae, you know, one on top of the other, then thoracic vertebrae on top of those. And there's a, up the front of all of the vertebrae, right from bottom to top, there's something called the anterior longitudinal ligament. And it's a ligament that runs the whole length of the spinal uh, column and it just is 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 directly on the front of the vertebral bodies. Right, it's like this kind of seat belt, you know, textured thing that goes right up the front. And then there's one at the back inside the spinal canal, like on the very back of the vertebral bodies inside the spinal canal where the spinal cord goes, called the posterior longitudinal ligament. So you've got this ligament at the front, ligament at the back, and the ligament at the front gets tight when you bend backwards. Right? So if you can pic- picture this spinal column, right, and the ligament at the front, you picture the spinal column bending backwards like into extension can you if you can picture that ligament at the front kind of getting tight as that happens right yeah and the one at the back the posterior longitudinal ligament when you bend backwards that posterior longitudinal ligament gets a bit lax it gets loose right Uh, and vice versa when you bend forwards right so the when you bend forwards the posterior ligaments get tight and the anterior ligaments the ligaments at the front go slack yes and then, of course, there are ligaments at the sides and there are the ligaments all around, like there are ligaments totally surrounding the whole spinal column. And, you know, so it's the same where you've got ligaments on the sides, you know, when you bend to the left, the ligaments on the right go tight. Mm-hmm. 
okay, and the ligaments on the left go slack, and then vice versa when you bend, you know. So basically, whichever way you bend, some ligament somewhere gets tight, and the other ligament on the other side gets loose, okay. But when you're in the very mid-range, when you're neither forward bent nor backward bent, neither side bent, you know, one way or the other, all of the ligaments are basically lax, right? There's not really any tension on any of them. And so the ligaments in this range, it's a range of about 10 degrees, okay? So it's not a very big range, but it's a range of about 10 degrees where the spine can bend forwards or backwards, sideways or sideways, twist a little bit, and none of the ligaments provide any restraint to that movement, right? So there's no kind of structural, well, not really structural is not the right word. There's no ligamentous, you know, reason why the spine can't just bend a little bit forwards or backwards from that position. So it's basically the the loosey-goosey position of the spine where muscles really provide the only restraining force on the spine within that small range of about 10 degrees. Yeah, so that's what neutral is. Okay, so that's um, that's super interesting. So, Raph, can everyone find that position? I guess that's something I've often pondered. Yeah, well, I think the short answer is probably not um, because we, we, I mean, probably for a couple of reasons. One is like people maybe some people can't attain it, you know, like maybe people, are, you know, who are very kyphotic, for example, or have a lot of head forwards position or, or you know, scoliotic or something where their, their centre of mass is not directly in, you know, halfway from front to back of their feet sort of thing. Yeah. So, that, so that they are a bit bent, so the ligaments at the back or the side or whatever are more tight than you know, the ligaments on the opposite side of the spine. So I'd say, you know, for some people, no, probably can't attain it. But more to the point, even for people who can, you know, phys- have the physical capacity to, to be in that position, we can't really measure it accurately. Like we can't really tell when someone's in neutral. That's the thing. Okay, right. So we've determined what neutral is. We've determined that some people can naturally attain it some people probably can't and so now and now we're saying but can you see it can you touch it no yeah, and the answer is no and no like the answer is no um, and no okay yeah, i think so. that's i think well i think that that's that's probably crucial right yeah because well, if we're i mean what are we doing what are we doing what are we doing like what are we doing you know because i i mean I know that obviously breathe education, you know, we haven't, we haven't taught a postural assessment for many moons now. Um, 2013, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, so long time, you know, once, once we know better, we do better. And once you knew better, we, we changed it up. Right. Because that's what's so cool about um, mm. breathe education. And we, we're constantly evolving with the latest evidence, etc. cetera. Um, but I, I do know for a fact, Raph, that a lot of Pilates um, training courses are definitely still teaching postural yeah. analysis and palpating of neutral and lining people up to, you know, the plumb lines and, and all of those things. A lot of, of physios things. do it as well, which is, you know, disappointing because it contra- contradicts, you know, best practice for the last 15 years. Yeah. And physios of all people, I think, should know better. Um, yeah. So shout out to all the good evidence-based physios out there who don't give postural advice. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and you see it and it's the whole, you know, that someone's, you're standing next to a client and you're, you've, got their, you've got a thumb on their ASIS or, or vice versa, maybe a thumb on their um, PSIS and then the ASIS and you're, Oh my mm. goodness! Yeah. And you and you're with your fingers and your eyes determining yeah. whether they've got you know too much of an anterior pelvic tilt or too much of a posterior pelvic tilt, and what's like yeah. this sweet sort of Goldilocks you know midway position, which is the holy grail neutral. Mm. So, so I think we need to delve into and I, and look, we have talked about this in previous podcast episodes. But what I really wanted to do with today's episode was put it all in the one place mm-hmm. so, that, so that this is a great resource for you as an instructor to, to go back to when you're like, ah, 
I remember that's not a thing, but like, why is it not a thing? How do I, you know, or maybe you're having it because this is something that's coming up a lot, Raf, is um, I hear from grads that are having ha- having to have those kind of difficult conversations with maybe their managers or peers who are adamant that it is a thing. So I want this to be a resource where you can you can share it, you can use it to have as, as a discussion point and to come and find some factoids. Mm. Um, so let's go into that, Raf, like, like the science behind why can't I, with my hands, tell if someone's pelvis is in air quotes neutral? Maybe it doesn't well, have to be air quotes because neutral exists, yeah, so I'm not going to yeah. do air quotes. In neutral, I'm just going to do in neutral, the air quotes yeah. – we're redundant there. Um, <laughs> why can't I see it or why can't I palpate it? Well, three three main reasons. First one is that uh, people's shape, the shape of people's bones is quite variable. You know, I mean, if you look, you know, if you're in a room with someone or if, I mean, you you know, if you're listening to this, you've, I'm sure you know people, you can call to mind their facial features, your loved ones, your friends, whatever. It's like, and it's for darn tootin' that if you had, you know, four or five of your loved ones in a room together, you could tell them apart, you know. Even if you just saw their face on a postage stamp-sized, you know, window on Zoom, you could still tell which one was which. And that is because we have differently shaped facial bones that give our face, you know, for, uh, as well as different eye colour and hair colour and whatever. But, you know, the shape of our faces largely is derived from the shape of our facial bones and you know the skull bone underneath how deeply set our eyes are how wide apart our eyes are the size of our nose how high and prominent our cheekbones are you know all of these things our jaw prominence the shape of our jaw all of these things are related to the different shapes of the bones Um, and so you know we kind of take that totally for granted in skulls Right, we wouldn't. We'd be shocked if we saw two people with identical faces, unless they were identical twins, you know. But we, for some reason, we expect everyone's pelvises to be identical. Mm, got you a know? great analogy. Oh my god, I love that. <laughs> what an awesome analogy. Yeah. Um, Isn't that interesting. And, yeah. So there was a, there's a study. Uh, can't remember the year, but it's like 2016, something like that. Called um, variations in pelvic morphology may prevent the identification of anterior pelvic tilt. And what the, morphology means shape. Right, it's the, the, what the researchers say to prove that they've haven't wasted their money on buying a PhD, you know, earning a PhD. They didn't buy a PhD, but they had to pay for the study. Um, but you know, so they use words like I morphology. Love that. I of love shape. that word morphology. Yeah. I love it. it I actually cool, use that right? word. I, I like that word. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so what they did was, they, and I think we've talked about this one before, so I won't spend too much time on it. But they got basically twenty uh, Raph, cadaver pelvises. Double. Double click, I'd like you to spend some time on it because I want this to be like the – I want this episode to be the one that that, – resource you know they can come straight to it well Spend a I'll bit of time the on show it notes. There's, okay. there's some great there's some great photos in it um so basically what they did was they got cadaver pelvises you know people had donated their body to science and they dissected out the pelvises and they took out the left and the right half of the pelvis and they put them each in a jig which is basically just a special clamp that holds them at a very precise angle um and so they lined up the ASIS and the symphysis pubis in a vertical line, you know, like mm-hmm. that's kind of the definition of neutral, um, in like neutral pelvis in, um, you know, a lot of textbooks. Uh, and then what they did was they measured the height of the iliac crest, the height of the PSIS relative to those things, and then relative to the other side of the same pelvis. And what they found was there's quite a bit of variation. I haven't got the study in front of me, but it was something like up to 11 millimetres of variation side to side in the height of the ASIS, you know. Wow, so, 11 millimetres. Yeah, and now, you know, I haven't got the study right in front of me. Um, that might be a little bit off, but, you know, look in the study. It was quite a bit. There was, okay. there, It was definitely, you know, of that order of magnitude. Um, very, v- quite a large variation in the height from side to side of the iliac crest. Quite a variation in the height from side to side of the, symph- of the uh, PSIS relative to the ASIS. And also, uh, they found that it wasn't the case, which is one of the things that I was taught when I was doing my Pilates training, it wasn't the case that females had PSIS higher than the ASIS. Mm. 
there would just seem to be like normally distributed. You know, so some people did, some people didn't. And whether you were male or female didn't seem to make much difference to it. Where did that myth come from then? It came from my Stop Pilates manual as far as I'm concerned. I don't know where it came from. Uh, it probably, probably, I, I guess they, <laughs> they, Stop Pilates sort of excerpted a lot of Kendall's work from yeah. posture and pain, muscles testing and function. Um, so they actually had photocopies from that book in their manual. So I guess that's where it must have come from. But anyway, so so pe- people's pelvises are not symmetrical and one person's pelvis is not the exact same shape as another person's pelvis. Duh. I mean, <laughs> look at people's faces. You know, if you look at anyone's face, just go look at your own face closely in the mirror, you probably, something's not symmetrical. Your nose is a bit crooked. One eye is a bit higher than the other eye. One ear is a bit higher than the other ear. Your smile's crooked. you you know, something's crooked about all of us. We're all we're all not perfectly straight. You know, so why would our pelvises be any different? So that that's one thing. The second thing is there's actually variation in the length of people's spinous processes as well. So the the pokey bones on the back of the spine. So if you've got if you're someone who's got very long lumbar spinous processes, okay, well you can appear to be very flat, even when you're you know. Qu- quote, in a lordosis, right? So if the vertebral bodies are in a lordosis, but if the spinous processes of, say, the L2, 3, and 4 are quite long, okay, that can make the spine, uh, block, you know, when you palpate it, seem yeah. more flat. And I've got, a, I've got a study, again, I can't remember the name of it, but I'll dig it out and stick it in the show notes. It's got a lovely, if you dig into the study, it's got some nice side view X-rays and CTs where you can look and go, ah, oh, that person's actually in like a lordosis, but you look at their spine on, it actually looks flat, right? And so you're looking at that person going, oh, no, you're flexed, you know, you're in lumbar flexion, but actually, no, they're, they're lordotic. Um, oh, wow. So you can't, you know, just by palpating and looking at the bones, whether it's the pelvis or the lumbar spine or the thoracic, you can't actually tell whether that is neutral or not neutral because the bones are not symmetrical and regularly shaped on everybody. Um, the second thing is, we're really shit at palpating accurately bony landmarks, even though we're super confident and we definitely feel like, oh, yeah, I've d- I totally found the spot, you know. But it's like, nah, dude, that's not the spot. Because when we when we do studies, and, and I've got a systematic review, I think, here um, from 2020 or something like that, that's basically looked at a whole bunch of studies of experienced physiotherapists, you know, and basically got this physiotherapist in the room and said, okay, there's a client lying on the table with, you know, no shirt on, you know, find their L5 spinous process, you know, and then they get, you know, 20 more physios to come in and find the same spot on the same person. And guess what? They find 20 different versions of that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that study. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, uh, and so this is, this is experienced manual therapists, okay? This is not like, you know, baby practitioners one day out of college or anything. Um, and, you know, so so our confidence that we can accurately palpate bony landmarks far exceeds our actual ability to accurately palpate bony landmarks. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, besides which, actually our eyes as well, so here's the third reason, our eyes are a lot less... Um, um, accurate than we think they are as well. Like I see, I see posts from time to time on Instagram of people going, "Oh, train your eye so you can pick up, mm. you know, what's going on in this exercise." And to a certain extent, you can tell, okay, someone flexing their shoulder or extending their shoulder. You know, mm. are they standing on one leg or two legs? You know, mm. sure, you can pick up that sort of thing. But um, we've got pretty good research evidence showing that under laboratory conditions, experienced physiotherapists can't pick up spinal flexion unless it's beyond 34 degrees, which is quite a lot of spinal flexion. <laughs> like, so somewhere anywhere between zero and 33 degrees, they can't tell the difference. Yeah, right. right. Um, and this is in a squat or a deadlift. So yep. um, I think we're really kidding ourselves when we, th- when we think that we can detect these things. Like, we're basically just imagining it and making up stories that we're detecting it. Um and I don't say that with any, uh, you know, disrespect or censure. I mean, I used to think I could detect those things as well. And when I when I palpate, you know, which I never do, but you know, if I did, 
I would be certain I could feel, oh, I can feel the PSIS under there. I know where it is, right? But so my, my senses tell me that I'm feeling it, right? But just because I've read all the research, I'm like, yeah, dude, no, you're just freaking kidding yourself, right? But it sure feels like I can feel it. Mm. Mm. Right. Um, and I remember we with the um, the STOT exam um, and you had to sort of, you know, tell if someone's pelvis was rotated and yeah. all these awfully nocebic things yeah. that really yeah. meant sweet FA. Yeah. Um, and, but the more things you could pick up, right, the better you did at the yeah. exam. Yeah. You were, yeah, you yeah. were actually – you were looking – for things yeah. right because if you yeah. could pick up those nuances you know that slight rotation and that one hip was a little bit higher than the other and all mm. of these things it was mm. like oh boy mm. yeah i mean there there well this this yeah i mean posture analysis i think there's so many things problematic about it you know we don't have one posture you know there's research showing people's posture changes throughout the day people's posture changes when they've got you know, more or less energy when emotion you know emotions you know, massively tied to posture i mean if, if you see your mum or your best friend walking you know across the street right you can tell within two seconds what kind of mood they're in you know by their posture you know when they're when they're a hundred yards away you can't really see their facial expression but you can tell whether they're pissed off at you or whatever just by the way they're they're swinging their hips or, or whatever it is and so it's like posture's intimately connected to emotion. It's, it's like it's part of our, it's like facial expression. It's part of our toolkit for nonverbal communication. So of course it's variable, you know, of course it's variable. Um, and yeah, so there's, there's studies showing that as well. When we get people to stand or sit or whatever and measure their posture repeatedly, it's different, you know, and they come back three days later, it's different. So it's not that someone goes from like, rigid kyphosis lordosis and then two minutes later they're kind of like this loose and flexible sway back but it's like people's posture is not it you know it, it is variable within you know within a range hmm. and i always say too you know we think we're going to change if you think you're going to change someone's posture like inherently change it with them coming to your class maybe like twice a week you know, two hours out of the rest of the hours in their week and you think that's going to be what changes inherently their posture, I think, you know, we're kidding ourselves. Agreed. So, all right, so, you know, so neutral's a zone, it's not a position of the spine, but, you know, we do define neutral pelvis, you know, in the textbooks as ASIS and symphysis pubis lined up and that's just really a convention, it's not... It's not based on anything in particular. It's not to say that people actually walk around in that position. Also, I was saying pubic symphysis, which is not the right thing, is it? It's symphysis pubis, not pubic symphysis. Pubic symphysis is that isn't that the issue? That's pain in the symphysis pubis potentially. No, I, just, I, I use the terms interchangeably. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. okay, good. I don't okay. know if I'm just, right or wrong about that. Oh, I just had a moment where I was like, "Am I just using it totally incorrect terms?" No, that, I think you're thinking that about out right now, live on air. Yeah, I am. Okay, okay, cool. Yeah, okay. Well, so all right, so we talked about what neutral is. We talked about can we tell if someone's in neutral, and the answer is hell no, we can't. Okay, and. I think the next thing that we need to think about is like, well, should we even care if someone's in neutral? A hundred percent. Before we get to that, let's take a break. Before the break, we said, should we even care about if someone's in neutral? And it'd be convenient if we didn't have to care because it turns out we can't actually tell if they're in neutral or not. So if, mm. if we had to care about it, that would be quite stressful. Um, but the good news is we don't need to care. We don't need to care. Okay. And I am wholeheartedly on board with that and I wholeheartedly do not care. But there are still a you lot of- You don't care with all of your heart. <laughs> with all of my heart, I do not care. Um, however, however, I do care that some people still care. So I want to, um, <laughs> I want to work through that. So the main thing that I, as I said um, earlier in the episode, the main thing that I observe in my classes- and, and the majority of my clients don't care because I don't care and I haven't taught caring about 
neutral or palpation of neutral or finding a neutral in footwork, for instance, for literally many years, there absolutely 100% was a time where I did have all of my clients lay on their back, create the little triangle, try and get it, you know, get it even, try and maintain that as they're doing their footwork. So there was a time where I did it. Sticking my hand up, me too. Yeah. yeah, and and it's interesting that um, clients that I have in my in my classes now, who are for all intents and purposes seemingly quite fearless with their movement and and you know embrace all the things that I'm sort of teaching them and getting them to explore from a movement perspective, which I think is really quite um, fearless movement and really awesome. There still seems to be this lingering need for some to find try and find that that neutral mm. pelvic alignment, particularly when in footwork. So for me, I think if I think about the old narrative as to why we used to think we needed to care about that, well, it really came down to a sheer force thing, right? In well, that, yeah. in that if you are in a neutral alignment, your spine is going to, you know, withstand load better than if you were in – so AKA it's safer to be in a neutral alignment when you're doing something like footwork. So I think that I'd really love to bust that myth. Mm. Well, I think there, there was there – were, I was taught safer and also more efficient in neutral. Ah, uh, okay. Were you taught that? I'm pretty sure I taught you that. Well, if you taught it to me, yeah, but sorry, Raph, that's something I've really liked. You know, you know they talk about memories and it's true that there's you, you actually get rid of ones – that you don't, you know, yeah. old stuff that you're just not using anymore, that's yeah. literally gone. Like that's yeah. not even in there anymore. <laughs> Sorry. <Great. laughs> Good. Um, well, the, the, you know, the, as far as I can tell, the genesis of the whole neutral spine thing, because it didn't come from Joseph Pilates, as you know. And no, because he so, – so double click on that. He seemed yeah. to more often than not cue a flat a flat. Well, back, I right? have here in or front of spine. me Pilates Return to Life Through Contrology uh, – originally published in 1945. I think I've got about the 2000 edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm here on page 17. This is the copy with the white cover with the photo of Joseph on the cover. Page mm-hmm. uh, 17, it says, quote, therefore in the reclining exercises, be sure wherever indicated to keep your back full length, always pressed firmly against the mat or floor. And oh, qu- he- end quote. Hello, posterior pelvic tilt. <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. Um, and if you know, I've also got the Kindle version of uh, Return to Life. And if you do a search in Kindle for the word neutral, not in there. Joseph doesn't use the term ever. Well, he also believed that everyone should have a perfectly straight spine and that any natural curves in the spine were a defect. Yeah. Correct. Um, yeah. So if we're saying, and this is where it often bugs me, I must admit, Raph, when it's the the argument used is but it's Pilates. It's not Pilates if I'm not cueing neutral or finding neutral. I mean, that's just totally inaccurate because if you're going to use, if you're going to use that as your argument, then you need to be quoting from well, Joe Pilates. Here, here's the thing that I, I, I've noticed. So I've got a 14 year old daughter and you and I, Chloe, we're kind of roughly kind of sort of the same age. I mean, you're probably a fair bit younger than me actually, to be honest, but. I'm uh, 44 this yeah. year. I'm not that yeah. far off you. Well, we're both yeah, Gen compared X's. to my daughter Bintu, where you and I are about the same age. You yeah, know, <laughs> more older than twenty. We're both, you know. we're both old to her, no doubt. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, and you know, so probably like me, probably for you, I'm imagining that when you were a kid growing up in Australia, Halloween was not really a tradition. You know, for us, it wasn't anyway. Yeah, well, I had some fun. I had some fun with it as a teenager because we were kind of into like wearing black and lots of black eyeliner and mm. going to mm. our graveyard. So there was a, there was, we did a couple of trick or treats. We were really more after the, the tricking, but mm. it wasn't mm. a big deal in Australia. Mm. We're not like it is in the States. Yeah. It's a massive big deal in the States. And, you know, so it's very normal in North America, as I see on social media a lot recently for people to go to great lengths to dress up, you know, people of all ages to dress up. I wanted to really build here in Australia. I think it's great. Well, it is building here in Australia, isn't it? Like it's it's a lot more common and all of my daughter's friends like are really into it. They made a big day. They went out for weeks beforehand planning their outfits, going to the op shops and buying it. old things, makeup, ordered makeup off the internet to get their spooky zombie faces on and all of the rest of it. And 
So, but here's the thing, like when I was a kid, that was not a thing. That was just not part of my universe. You know, it's like I was aware that Halloween existed, right? Yeah. But it was just like one of those weird things that the Americans did, you know? Yeah. Um, you would have seen it on like movies and stuff. Yeah. But, you know. Scooby-Doo, stuff this like back that, you know? Raph and I are old enough that there wasn't internet, et cetera, <laughs> when we were little. <laughs> but, but for my daughter, who was born in 2006, ever since she's been old enough to have memories, like uh, Halloween's been a thing, right? So in her mind, Halloween is this eternal tradition that has been going forever, right? Since Ah, the dawn of the universe, right? Before the Big Bang, there was Halloween, you know? It's a tradition, tradition, you know? And and so, for, for you know, when... You know, when my daughter says to me, like, oh, what are you doing for Halloween? I'm like, nothing. I don't give a shit about Halloween. She's like, what the? How could you say such sacrilege? Like, it's in- inconceivable that someone could. You didn't get you dressed know, up and go trick-or-treating, Ralph? I am the tradition of Halloween, but everybody does Halloween. And it's like, no, everybody who's 14 does Halloween if you're in Australia. Uh, this year, I actually painted my face as a cat and I um, gave out gave out treats to some of the cutest little, had little... Batman come and little like witches and little, it was great. Yeah, so right. Halloween's becoming a thing mm. in Australia, right? Yeah. But 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it really wasn't a thing. No, I, and, I totally agree. But if you're 14 years old, you don't know, 20 years ago, it's not a thing, right? You, for her, it's always been a thing. And I think that's the same for us in Pilates, right? 60, 80 years ago, when Joseph Pilates was teaching, Neutral spine wasn't a thing. He never mentions it. It's not part of his lexicon. It's not part of his repertoire of words. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even part of Romana's lexicon of words until the 1990s, the late 1990s, early 2000s, when you know Romana, the, the second generation, you know, the people taught by Romana were you know, coming into their own and stepping to the forefront of the industry. I'm thinking about, you know, Maurice Stott and Et Al, you know, those other sort of contemporaries, um, and, you know, they were influenced all the, the, quote, contemporary Pilates, you know, uh, people. They were influenced a lot by physiotherapy and, you know, biomechanics and exercise science. And physiotherapy, if in 1998, was kind of into neutral, you know. And so that kind of got baked into Pilates around about the late 90s. Got right? baked in the squat. Yeah, and so if you're a kid in Pilates years, right, whatever your chronological age, but if you're a kid in Pilates years and you were educated in, say, 2010 or 2015 or 2005 or whatever, it's like, well, you would have got neutral spine. And when I learned neutral spine from Stop Pilates and I actually went to Toronto and learned it from Moira, you know, I was presented with this book that says, hey, neutral spine, and I was like, oh, this is the tablet of the Ten Commandments. You know, this is... This is manna from heaven. This is God's word, you know, like because Moira gave it to me, you know. Yeah. And and so there was no question in my mind of like, oh, is this true or where did she hear it from or anything? It was just like, oh, this is the this is how the universe mm. works. But, you know, as I've got a bit more curious and, uh, you know, started to investigate and read Joseph's book from cover to cover multiple times and looked at old clips of him teaching and read John Steele's book and – you know, everyone do a push-up and... Cage Lion, how can you yeah. just say, oh, jo- John Steele's book, whatever that is. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I've learned that, you know, before about the year 2000-ish, neutral spine was not a thing in Pilates. It just wasn't a thing. Mm. Came from physiotherapy. Mm. Absolutely. And, well, we know that... Uh, the, the Stott syllabus was written in conjunction, my understanding, it was written in conjunction with a physio. And then we also, you know, have other like um, Polestar, et cetera, but Brent, physio and so yeah. on. So there was this this definite influence of physio in the 90s, early 2000s, which yeah. was highly steeped in neutral and I you know here we can reference it it, we've talked about this study many many times the McGill famous McGill pig spine experiment with the pigs and I don't want to go down there until we go down that route again but yeah well yeah the seminal study on uh, so yes I think we have to we can't we can't talk about neutral spine and not talk about the pig spine experiment yeah yeah we have to I think that's that's a really important point for 
you know, to understand just in perspective of the history of Pilates, neutral is pretty recent, right? It got baked yeah. in at about the year 2000. Considering Pilates has been around since the 1930s, right, that's, you know, that's pretty recent. And, and it, Joseph was 40 years dead, Right, 1920s <laughs> actually. I'm doing. I'm presenting the Pilates history lecture awesome. this weekend, Raf. <laughs> awesome. So, a long yeah, time, Joseph, right? <laughs> Joseph was like 35 or 40 years, you know, in his grave. The first time neutral spine was mentioned in conjunction with Pilates. Um, so it's just like so. Yeah. So I think that's that's very interesting. And uh, the 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 final part is like, well, where did physiotherapy get it from? And, you know, is that still important? And, you know, so I think we come back to that seminal study by Callahan and McGill 2001, which they basically got pig spines, which are anatomically pretty similar to human spines, and they stuck them in a jig, you know, a pair of vertebrae. They used L3, L4, sorry, C3, C4, so neck vertebrae, pig neck vertebrae, which are anatomically similar to human lumbar vertebrae. And they compressed them and then bent them back and forth 86,400 times, so one one time per second for 24 hours. Was it literally that seconds. many times? It was you literally 86,400 times in 24 hours. Yes, once per second for 24 hours. Wow. So, so they got three. They actually, I can't remember if it was three or two. I think they got two because there's another one, which is Guya's et al. They, did, they repeated the same experiment um, in 2015, which I think they did three groups. So in in the Callahan and McGill study, they did had two groups. One group, maybe they had four groups. Anyway, no, they had four groups. They had, they had a high load group and a low load group. So they had spines that were compressed a lot and spines that were not compressed a lot. And then they had spines that bent, you know, full range and spines that didn't bend full range. And what they found was the ones that uh, were compressed a lot, whether they bent or they didn't bend, they all got injured. And the ones that weren't compressed a lot, whether they bent or didn't bend, none of them were injured. So what that study showed was that the amount of compression that is applied to the spine is the biggest risk factor for injury, not how much the spine bends. Right. So I think that, you know, where people got confused with that study, and I'll link to it in the show notes so you can read it yourself if you want, but is that... Like I said, only the spines in the high load group were injured. So regardless of whether they bent or didn't bend, the high load ones were all injured, the low load ones weren't injured. But the high load ones, the ones that bent were injured in a different place from the ones that didn't bend. Yeah. Right? And so the ones that didn't bend, they were just kind of basically straight. They were, you know, one vertebrae kind of stacked on top of the other. And they were, you know, just compressed you know, like in a sandwich, you know, these two vertebrae kind of squished into each other. Well, the ones, they were injured by the end plate, you know, so the basically the, the base of the vertebra basically cracking, right? The end plate fractured, okay? Mm -hmm. Well, we think about it, if the vertebrae kind of just stacked flat on top of each yeah. other and you squash them, Makes well, sense. That's, that's a bit the cracks, right? Yeah. Whereas the ones that were bending back and forwards, it was the discs and also the... Um, the, the bones at the back, like the pars interarticularis, you know, the, the sort of back part of the vertebra, that was injured because that's the bit as it bends backwards and forwards, those are the bits that were stressed the most, right? Mm. So the number of injuries was the same between the bending and the non-bending. It's just mm -hmm. where the injury was that was mm -hmm. different. And so the problem with, that came from that is the sound bite was flexion caused disc injuries, Right. Gotcha. But what they missed out was a neutral caused end plate fractures. Yeah, I was going <laughs> right? to say like fractures of your, your vertebrae. <laughs> right. So we just chopped off that other half of the sound bite. Because <laughs> that wouldn't suck, like, you know. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so ultimately, and that experiment's been re repeated by, I think it was Guyas et al., and they found the same thing. And they had six groups. Yeah. Yeah. And Raf, with that as well, was the concept too that with the with that experiment all the ligaments the you know connective tissue which is like all the everything all the great stuff that is surrounds our spine was stripped away so all that was really there were the discs and the vertebrae uh, they described it as the osteoligamentous spine which okay. they uh, they weren't precise about which ligaments they kept and which ones they didn't. So right. I, I'm assuming they had the anterior longitudinal ligament, the posterior longitudinal ligament. I'm not sure if they had the gotcha. the, the nuchal ligament or the 
uh, you know, interspinous ligament or the supraspinous ligament, or you know, so uh, yeah. it's not clear to me which yeah. which if any they had. But yeah. They didn't have the lumbar dorsal fascia and all no, of these things that we know actually take so much load when we are right. actually flexing right. our spines. So and it's not a complete picture, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Right. It's and, not true. You know, we don't walk like, around like with all this other stuff stripped off us as we're doing things, right? No, and it's like, well. If you said to me, hey, Raf, I'm going to go to the gym and do 86,400 deadlifts in one <laughs> set, do you think do you that's a good that's plan? Do you reckon that's a good idea? No, I don't think it is a good plan. You know, you like, might pull up a bit sore after that, Chloe. Yeah. <laughs> might be a little more than Dom's with that one. <laughs> yeah, but maybe maybe take those 86,400 deadlifts and do like three sets of 10 with a three-minute rest in between and do that twice a week for the next 27 years, right? And that'll be 86,400 and you'll get a lot stronger over that period. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that, that it wasn't really a study that we can extrapolate to, to real life. Yeah. So, that's, so um, that's fascinating. So from there came this obsession that actually loading in neutral is safer. And that yeah. could be in air quotes, couldn't it? The safer part could be yeah. in air quotes. Yeah. Yeah. It can. It should be in air quotes because mm. subsequently, this is now that was that was in two thousand and one. Uh, Callahan and McGill, the pig spine experiment. Two thousand and one. So that was twenty years ago. Twenty years ago this year. Yeah. Right. Um, and so there's been a, a truckload of additional research since then, and we've got just we've got really quite a lot of research now. I would say, in my view, it's getting to the point where I would call it overwhelming. That is it getting to the point where it starts to say, you know, when you finally there's enough? It's kind of like with all the acupuncture studies and it says, really, no further study is going to find anything different. You know, when they yeah, finally like get to when that? We've, when we've got 200 studies and they all found no difference, you know, like it's how like many more studies stop, do you need to do? You can yeah. stop wasting your research funds on this and concentrate on something else kind of thing. Yeah, yeah Is it getting yeah, there? Yeah. Uh, I think we're not quite there yet. Um, but what we do have is a number of lines of research. So we've got um, biomechanical researchers. Uh, well, we've got biomechanical research showing that the forces on the spine are the same whether you bend your back or don't bend your back when you lift. Mm -hmm. um, we've got studies showing that uh, actually um, elite lifters, you know, like power lifters, um, flex their back when they're lifting maximally. And we've also got biomechanical studies showing that actually when people lift maximally, like lift the heaviest load they can lift, lifting with a flexed spine is actually uh, is associated with, with greater strength and better movement efficiency, so less energy to move the same amount of weight. Um, we've also got studies showing that um, lifting with a, a bent back is so like we look at people in the workplace and we go and observe them. So who lifts with a straight back, who lifts with a bent back, right? And then we come back a year later and say, okay, who's got back pain? And what we find is how people lift doesn't predict whether they're going to have pain a year later, right? Um, and, and then we look at, we have other studies that look at people who do have back pain and people who don't have back pain right now. And then we go and ask them to go and lift up some stuff. Like there's, there's this one study where they got them to go and, you know, they had a group of people with back pain, group of people with no back pain, and they got them to go and lift up something relatively light off the floor about 100 times each, right? And they just watched how they lifted and measured how they lifted it. What they found was people with back pain lift with a more straight spine than people without back pain. I mean, if you think, think about it, right, if you don't oh, have back pain, it, right? It, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. I mean, when you, walk, when you walk into the lounge room and you're this, you know, something got to pick up off the floor like some kids left some toys yeah. on the floor or whatever. It's like you just bend over and you bend your back and keep your legs straight and pick, the, pick it up off the floor, right? That's just a normal movement. And the reason we do that is because that's the most efficient way to get your hand to the floor. Like, I mean, tr just try it now. Like, if you listen to this, as long as you're not driving a car, you know, <laughs> like just be really relaxed, okay, and just bend over and pick something, you know, like put your hand on the floor, right? Bend your knees if you have to, but like basically – Keep your legs straight-ish and just bend your spine and, and reach your hand to the floor. Now, come up to straight, okay? Brace yourself in neutral. Keep your spine neutral the whole way and now reach your hand to the floor. How much more energy is it to squat down with your torso braced in neutral 
to pick up a coffee cup or something. It's the it's classic. Um, it's the classic workplace health and safety lifting manual, though, isn't it? Yeah. Where yeah. it's all of that. I, I can picture the pictures now. You know, with everyone trying to hold this straight back as they're yeah. lifting the box, etc. Um, yeah. But there's aren't, aren't there studies on that as well, though? That yeah. When we, when, we, when we go into workplaces and teach people how to lift with a straight back and lift with the legs, not the back and all that, it makes no difference how much back pain those people have, you know, over time. It's like it just – it doesn't make a difference. So, I mean, there's, there's – also there's an interesting study uh, which looked at disc herniations. Um, so, you know, lumbar disc herniations. And they try to track back and figure out what was the inciting event or, like, what was the cause, you know, how did they – get the herniation how did it herniate and basically what they found was in the vast majority of cases there was no identifiable inciting event right mm-hmm. so it, there wasn't like oh i was lifting a car off a dying child or you know i was squatting at the gym and my, it's like there was nothing like that it was just like i bent over to pick my keys up off the nightstand and my back went you know, mm. or I just woke up and my back was really sore. Or yeah, I, you know. I had a sore back when I woke up this morning. I was like, oh damn it! <laughs> it's the old, it's the old gets you in your sleep. Right. But they, they, so, they, but these weren't just people with pain. These were people with like MRI showing, you know, herniated right, discs, gotcha, right? Gotcha. And they're trying to figure out like when did it herniate? And basically, the thing was they couldn't figure it out because right, right. there was no quote, inciting event. You know, people just had no recollection of like, oh, I was squatting at the gym and my back went tweak, right? And then though, are we saying what came first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, could they have had that, you know, we, they we could have, have had it, with right. scans, could have been there for a long time, so yeah. Right, but yeah, but this study found, found literally no statistical association between like a lifting event and a disc herniation. So the vast majority of disc herniations, it seems, are not caused by or related to lifting. They just happen by mysterious and probably natural processes. Right. Okay. So looping back to footwork, Raphael, um, <laughs> what's our chance of herniating a disc in with all springs on, laying on our back, not in neutral? Well, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go biomechanical on this one. I'm just going to give you two metaphors. <laughs> okay. Right? right, so Joseph Pilates died at the age of, what was he, like 83 or something like that, 84? It wasn't he 86? 80, yes, anyway, he was in his 80s. Anyway, I should know that again. I'm <laughs> delivering history lesson on um, the weekend. I need to... He, <laughs> yeah, he was his, in his 80s. As I understand it, his footwork was done generally on three full springs. That, well, that's the, that's the law I got down from Moira. I'm not sure where she got that from, but... Do you know what springs he's, Joseph used for footwork? His, I was of the impression they were all the springs that were on the universal All the springs, reformer. okay. All right, so as heavy as possible. Heavy, heavy. Yep. All right, yep. and so he had, uh, you know, himself doing, uh, you know, footwork. Presumably he did footwork from time to time. I imagine he did it quite regularly. Um, on full springs and remember from page 17 of Return to Life, with the spine pressed full length firmly to the mat or floor, right, or the reformer carriage. So he's doing footwork on all the springs in full lumbar flexion for many decades, right? Happy as Larry, okay? And sorry, so that's one thing. And, you know, what it about all the of the... It was the cigars that were the, the, the thing that took him down at the end. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and, you know, what about all of the people in classical Pilates who still follow that, you know, press the spine to the... The, the, like they're not exploding when they do their footwork. They seem to be fine. Um, and and then I'm just going to direct you to something which I just love and I can't resist linking to in the show notes, which is the World Deadlift Championships 2016, which was just about the greatest deadlift championships ever because multiple records were broken in the ca- in the course of like ten minutes. Like the record was broken and rebroken and rebroken and rebroken, and it's it's just these humans just lifting weights beyond what's conceivable like the the they eventually broke the 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 record stood at 500 kilos mm-hmm. um which is over 1000 pounds like it is just it's it's a wow. imperial ton you know like wow. it's it fucking <laughs> inconceivable you know like um and 
when you look at it, and I love this particular video because you, it's filmed from the side, and so you can see their spinal position very clearly as they're lifting, and this is way more than 34 degrees. They're flexed, like fully flexed, and that totally makes sense when you read the research and understand that actually the spine is more efficient and stronger in a fully flexed position because, I'm sorry, I can't resist a tiny bit of anatomy and biomechanics. When you... Uh, when you you know lift something like a, in a deadlift, you basically lift anything off the ground. Okay, you're using your muscles to produce force. Okay, um, and you can you know if you're lifting off the ground, you can use your leg muscles, you can use your hip muscles, you know, like you can use your quads and your hamstrings, you can use your glutes and your adductors, you can use a whole bunch of muscles, and you can also use your back muscles, right? Um, and you can use some combination. So if you use more back, you can use less legs and vice versa, right? And so it turns out that um, the back muscles produce the most force when the back is kind of neutral or slightly extended, right? So if you contract your spinal extensors, they contract most forcefully when you're in a slight extension, okay? Uh, and then as you bend forward, the spinal muscles, the, the, the extensor muscles, they relax and they produce less and less force until when you fully flex, the spinal extensors, basically, they go silent. It's called the flexion relaxation reflex. And basically, your, your muscles relax. You know, when, you, when you're standing and you do a forward bend, your back muscles relax. But as we talked about right at the start, as you bend forward, the ligaments at the back of your spine go tight, Right? And it just so happens that the ligaments at the back of your spine are strong as fuck. They're really fucking strong, right? And so they're, they're way stronger than your back muscles. Doesn't matter how many back exercises you've done, right? A Mack truck is going to be stronger than a Mini. You know, it doesn't matter what engine you put in the Mini, right? The Mack truck is still stronger. And that is your spinal ligaments. They are going to be stronger than your spinal muscles, right? So when you're in neutral, right, remembering that we said right at the start, the definition of neutral is where the ligaments are lax, mm -hmm. right? So if you pick something up off the ground, right, and your spine is in neutral, your ligaments are lax, they're contributing nothing to the force production, right? And your muscles are doing it, right? Which is yeah. all good and all great. And if you want to build your back muscles, that's a great way to do it, okay? But if you want to pick up the heaviest thing possible, okay, you've got to produce the most force possible, right? And your ligaments, if you bend forwards, okay, until they go tight, they produce way more force than your muscles can, so that is why you see elite powerlifters when they deadlift, okay, they like ninety-five percent of them flex like to their full extent of their spinal flexion, like they flex fully as they deadlift. And I'm talking about as they deadlift four to five times body weight. Like this is not like you know in the pump class at the local gym, okay. So if or you in want, footwork, Raf. Or in footwork. So I'm going to stick that in the show notes. Go watch Eddie Hall, um, Thor Bjornsson, Ed L, um, uh, you know, Benny Magnuson lifting just superhuman weights with fully flexed spines. It's a beautiful view from the side. Um, and just thinking about the fact that they're what they're doing is they're taking advantage of the natural uh, strength of their spinal ligaments, okay, the posterior longitudinal ligament, the nuchal ligament, the supraspinous ligament, the lumbodorsal fascia, all of these ligaments, which are incredibly robust, strong structures. They're producing force in their legs and they're using that, those spinal ligaments to transfer the force up their torso to their arms. You know, no one tells you to contract your arm muscles when you do a deadlift and, you know, do a bicep curl while you're doing it. Okay, because if you just hang your arms, you can pick up a lot more <laughs> than if you lift with your arms at the same time because your arm muscles are nowhere near as strong as your shoulder ligaments, right? Mm. It's pretty obvious, right? Same in your back. Mm. Great. Mm. Well, I think we've, we've, we've ticked 
you know, we've, we've explored, well, what is neutral? We've explored, can it be palpated or visually determined? And that's a hard no. And we've explored, well, do we need to care about it? And that is also a hard no. Yeah. So I think that this really, I would really love this myth to just be gone now. Mm. What do you think, Raph? Well, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not holding my breath, but I think <laughs> I, I would just like to, you know, just before we finish, I would just like to say because sometimes um, – you know, when when we have conversations like this, sometimes it can, people can feel like a little bit nihilistic and it's like, oh, well, if we don't care about neutral looks, like what about in a plank? Can I just do any position? Now well, does it matter? Well, well, you can. You can do any position. Like like, real, like if you're saying to me, can you do any position in a plank? Well, you actually can. You actually can, yeah. But I guess the, the, the position... But are the, there positions the, where you might be getting potentially stronger for what are you then going to be doing with that? So... Is that what you're thinking? Uh, well, I'm more thinking Sorry. like as an instructor, right? If I'm yep. no longer kind of cueing my clients to be safe, right? Well, what am what should I cue, right? Does it not matter what position anyone's in anymore? Is it just a free-for-all? Can anyone just – it's just like, hey, guys, there's the reformers over there. Go do whatever you want. I'll be back in an hour, you know? Like, is, is that what we're, is that I'll where just, we're at I'll now? just sit in the corner, drink my coffee and play on Instagram. <laughs> Come on. We know this. We've spoken about this before. Like, we, there's certain shapes, you know, if we're, if we're talking about – you know, if we're referencing, for instance, the Contrology exercises, if I'm thinking about something like a long stretch, which, you know, I often refer to get people into it – it's kind of like a fancy name for a plank. Um, but then what we look at if, if I'm wanting to then finesse the shape of the long stretch and I'm wanting to get it more towards, well, what was the contrology long stretch? Well, we're seeing a little bit more of like it's basically the full interpretation of your hundreds flipped upside down. So we're seeing that hollow body shape. So the long stretch, if I'm trying to if I'm trying to coach my clients into a contrology long stretch from a shape perspective, that's going to look like a bit of a flexed sort of plank, you know, it's a bit of a tucked butt, the legs are together, you know, there is a there is a shape to the to the exercise that we're getting towards. Would you oh. agree with that? You know, I if it's agree. a down stretch, well the down stretch is ultimately it's a back bend and you're rocking that back bend forward and back whilst maintaining that shape. So do we have a role in coaching shapes in Pilates exercises? A hundred percent. Am I coaching those shapes because I inherently think one is safer than the other? Absolutely freaking no. Mm. And if I'm if I'm if I've learned to do long stretch in a neutral spine, which a lot of people have, is that is that wrong? Am I a bad person? Can I still you're, teach that? You're a horrible person, Raph. <laughs> no. <laughs> you do you, boo. That's what that's what Laura would say. You do you. Um, <laughs> no, so, if you if you like teaching it in the you know, I've got to stop doing these air quotes. If you like teaching it in a neutral-ish, visually, you know, plankish thing, go for it. I personally really enjoy the the more gymnastic um, element of the contrology exercises. So I do coach my clients into that into that more flex position. Yeah, yeah I, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think like, well, if you like teaching in neutral, great, fine. You know, if you like the aesthetics of it or, you know, for yeah. whatever reason, like, great. But just I'd, I would say stop telling people it's safer. Correct. Be really mindful of the narrative. And, and mm. that to me, that's really important. Yeah. Mm. So teach whatever darn position you want, really. If you want to yeah. teach neutral, great. If you want to teach flexion, great. Extension, rotation, whatever. Teach it all. But don't, yeah, stop telling people that one position's better. Than the yeah, other position. We we need to come from a place of um, fearless movement and anti fragility and yeah. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Great, love that, Raf. Good talk, Chloe. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. 
This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.